Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I want to preach this morning about a phrase that I think is very familiar to most people in this room, but also kind of perplexing. It's one of those phrases that I think everyone thinks they know, but then when they're pressed on it, they're not really sure what it is. And so we'll press in and look at what that means. The title of the message is Born Again. And I'm going to draw from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And uh, that might seem like a, a picture that doesn't make sense at first, but it's this idea that we are walking and then there is a new birth and then we grow up again in that second birth. And that's what that, that illustration is meant to communicate. There is in ancient mythology a story about a bird called the phoenix. And it's a story so old that no one's really sure where it originated. There are variations on this myth in ancient Greek, Persian, Assyrian, Egyptian, Chinese, and Roman cultures. It is found in so many ancient things. And it's a story of a bird that lives for anywhere from 500 to 1,000 years. And then when it's all old and dried up and is ready to die, it make, makes a big nest out of all this flammable material. And then it sits in it and just burns. And after it completely burns down to ashes, the miraculously out of the ashes of that old body, a new bird emerges. And this new bird then lives just as long as the last one. And on and on it goes. Now I wondered, why is that story so popular? Why does it reach back so far in the history of humanity? And I think it's because that story touches on one of the deepest longings in the human heart. And that deep longing, that foundational longing, is the desire for a new beginning. I think it is a necessary part of being an adult that there are so many times you wish you could control Z your whole life. Right? If you don't have a computer, you have no idea what I just said. Just undoing, stepping back, getting a second shot at things. How many times have you said to yourself, if I could turn back time, <clears throat> if I could go back to that one day, that one fork in the road where I took a very bad turn, if I could go back to high school knowing what I know now, I'd end up in Harvard, you know, things like that. How many times... Have you said that to yourself? There is this deep longing in the human spirit in view of the mess that often has been made of our lives that we wish we could start over. In fact, in little ways, in things like New Year's Day and New Year's resolutions, the start of a new semester, you know, in all these new chapters, we celebrate this opportunity to get a fresh start. That's something we like. I think this deep longing for new beginnings finds its ultimate fulfillment in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about words in scripture that talk about this new beginning, like this triumphant declaration of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. Some of you, you guys should see yourselves. You're like this. 
don't know what that means. It is exciting to hear words like that. And maybe it's because you don't believe it. Maybe because you're half asleep. But I'm, let me tell you something. If that word there has any reality or truth, if it's actually possible for human beings to start over, even in adult life, to get a new beginning, that is very good news. You may not have picked the life you were born into. You may not have picked the color of your skin, the genetics, the the heritage, the family you were born into. You may not have picked your gender, your physical features, anything. You may not even want to be in the United States right now. And maybe the life you have is not necessarily the life you would have chosen for yourself. But this idea that in Christ, in some significant way, I'm not talking about income and career, but the essence of who you are, the person you are, can be made new. See, I think too often, <clears throat> excuse me, the gospel is framed only in terms of heaven or hell. Would you rather go to heaven or would you rather go to hell? That is absolutely a part of and an urgent part of the gospel message. But if that's where the gospel ends for us, we have grossly misunderstood what God's word tells us. That it isn't just your eternal resting place that is forever changed. But that in a very profound way, everything you once were the old has gone. And in its place, like the phoenix rising out of the ashes, a new creature begins to live. That's why it is so appropriate that when Jesus was talking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus, he used the language born again to talk about this miraculous process by which a human being, even after they're already born, can be made alive. What's interesting is Nicodemus was an old guy, and so he's wondering, well, come on, I'm already kind of set. And he says, even you, even now, in this advanced day of your life, can experience a complete and brand new beginning. Theologians call this idea regeneration. What do you think about when you hear the word regeneration? I think of freshman biology class and a lizard getting its tail cut off and then it regenerates a new one. Or, you know, you, you cut off your fingernail and it regenerates, it grows more. This idea that you cut away something and something new keeps growing to replace it. And I think that's a very apt theological term. And we're going to explore uh, what this means because I think most of us have heard and feel we're familiar with the words born again. But if someone came up to you and said, hey, what does it actually mean to be born again? I wonder if we'd know. The word of God, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 says this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Sorry. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? I'm sorry. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. The idea of rebirth tells us that even though every one of us was born once, I mean, I think that's obvious. I'm looking at everyone. You came out of your mother's womb. Here we are, that there is still a sense in which until this event happens, you are dead on your feet. That you may be alive through the first birth, but unless you experience the second birth, you are in your spirit still dead. And life for you, this life which we call eternal life, life in Christ, cannot begin until you're born again. Until this regeneration of the human spirit, the human heart, the soul takes place, there is no Christianity and no life of which we can speak in the context of Christianity. So let me explain to you what I believe are some key things that you need to know about what it is to be born again. And the first is that being born again is absolutely necessary. Okay? It's absolutely necessary. There is no validity to the statement, you know, I've been living like a Christian, dotting my I's and crossing my T's for a long time, and I just sort of became Christian gradually. I like the teachings. I hung out in the church, and so I feel kind of like a Christian, sort of like when you um, live together long enough, the law says, well, you're like common law marriage. You've, you've kind of acted married long enough. We'll just call you married. Well, there is no such thing in the Christian life. This experience of being born again is essential to being Christian. <clears throat> It says in John 2, verses 23 to 25, that because of the miraculous signs he did in Jerusalem at the Passover in Jerusalem, many people were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew what people were really like. No one needed to tell him about human nature. That's John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. What that says is there was a time right around that period where Jesus was growing in popularity and a lot of people were fans of this guy, Jesus, who would stand in public squares, proclaim words with authority, and then, this is the kicker, he would do stuff. He would turn water into wine. It's a pretty good trick if you know the price of wine. It's a wonderful trick. He'd turn barrels, gallons of water into very good wine. What else did he do? He was healing people. People who had lifelong illnesses would walk by him and he would just touch them. And just like that, everything would be made new. And so people were marveling. They said, could this be the deliverer Israel was promised? The one who would overthrow Rome and lead us back into an age of national prominence. And so a lot of people glommed onto Jesus because he was popular. And in fact, he was impressive. So it was as though he had large crowds with him. But in fact, these crowds were not really with him. And Jesus, knowing the hearts of people, said, I reject this shallow and superficial fan club followership. This is not my kingdom. Is that people who are impressed by my tricks and signs and wonders want to follow me to see more tricks 
and maybe more signs and maybe get a few good things for themselves. This has never been the kingdom. It has never been made of people who are impressed by or drawn to Jesus and just want to hang out around him. It is made up of people who have experienced something profound. In other words, he's saying to to Nicodemus and to us, it's not enough that you're impressed by the miracles you watch from a distance. The miracle has to happen in you or else I am not alive in you and you are not alive in me. You can be very taken with Jesus, impressed by him. Even have a very favorable spirit and yet not be saved. It says that the man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, came to Jesus by night. And he had the same spirit as the crowds. He said, you're pretty impressive. I know for sure you must be from God. Because no one but a servant of God could do the things that you do. So it's clear that Nicodemus, being a religious leader has the same heart that everybody else has. This guy is pretty impressive. i got to get closer. And being a religious leader, he could gain access to Jesus, perhaps at a private audience in ways that others could not. And so under cover of night, he goes and visits him. And before Nicodemus gets any more words out of his mouth, Jesus looks right at him unapologetically and says, Dude, I know you think I'm the stuff, but if you are not born again, you will never, ever see the kingdom of God. See, Nicodemus did not come to Jesus with skepticism or hostility. He wasn't a hater or a doubter. That's not who he was. He was genuinely interested in Jesus. He was a deeply religious man. As a Pharisee, it was clear that when he came to religion, no one could top these guys. He did everything right as, when it came to religion. As a member of the ruler, the ruling council of the Jews called the Sanhedrin, he was also a pillar in his community. He wasn't just a church guy. He helped run the community. He helped decide important disputes. He brought justice to the people's lives. And so as a ruler, this is a solid guy coming to Jesus, and he was taken by him, very favorable in his attitude. And yet for all of that, Jesus looks right at him and says, I know who you are. I see all the things that others value. But I tell you, when I look at you, you are dead spiritually. And unless I make you alive, there is nothing in you that can be redeemed. Your years of religious faithfulness, your service to your community, even your favorable and open attitude toward me, those things do not save. You are not saved Unless you are born again, unless I touch you in such a way that your soul, your heart are made new, you will just learn another way of life. But there will be nothing actually happening inside. I believe that that describes a lot of people in churches today. I I read an article um, written by John Piper, pastor, well-known pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minnesota. How many of you guys like John Piper? I like his stuff a lot. I think he's a solid thinker and a writer. He's a great pastor. He was preaching on, a, on some verses around this passage. And he said, you know, I don't relish the thought of saying this. But I believe that there are millions in the pews of American churches, or dare I say in the folding chairs of American churches, who are just like Nicodemus who are drawn to Jesus, part of his fan club, have hung around his house and his people forever. They have gradually slid into a a lifestyle, a culture, a belief system 
But in their hearts, nothing ever really happened. And they struggle, they strain to make this meaningful. They fight the sleep every Sunday. And it's not just because the preacher is boring. Sometimes, yes, it is. It is, right? But there's something in your heart that when you're watching a movie or a live, and when you're hearing a sermon, you're like, oh, come on, just stay awake. It's a shameful. Slapping yourself, right? There's something in you that goes, well, I'm, I kind of dig this, especially when there's like a good skit or a good video, but why are these other people so worked up all the time? Why do they seem so into this and I've never felt that? Why do they have convictions where they're like ready to go to battle for these truths? And I'm like, what's the big deal, dude? Don't get so agitated. Why does this, this stuff matter so much to you? And I believe that John Piper's right. There are a lot of people in churches who learned a way of life but never had a transaction with the Lord in which their hearts and their spirits were quickened and made alive. And that's not the point, the finger of accusation. It's not for lack of trying. It's that maybe they were never taught this is an absolutely necessary part of the Christian experience. There's no back door around being born again. Do you get that? There is no back door to being born again unless this happens in us. We are simply cultural Christians who are very careful about what we say and how we live. And so Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. That word must in the Greek is a very strong word. John only uses it when he's emphasizing how central and important something is. He uses it to talk about the the necessity, how Jesus must be crucified, how he must do his earthly ministry, how he must be risen from the dead. These are indispensable ingredients in the Christian story. There is no salvation without being born again. There's a second truth to being born again, and that is that being born again is entirely God's work. I want you to imagine what a shock the words of Jesus were to a guy like Nicodemus. I know he slinked into the house by cover of night. We don't want to make too much of that. But Nicodemus did not walk into that meeting insecure. He walked into that meeting confident. He's like, hey, I am a Pharisee, a member of the ruling Jewish council. I am, when it comes to this community, one of the head honchos of the faith. If people have questions, I don't ask questions. I answer them, man. And so he walked up to Jesus and said, come on, Jesus, rabbi to rabbi, you know, leader to leader. Let's rap a little bit. You tell me about how you think, and I'll evaluate what you're saying. And that's the, that's the circumstances under which he thought he was going to have this meeting. He walked in saying, oh, let's have a seat and let's talk faith stuff. One, one man of God to another. Imagine the shock to a system when Jesus said, we're not exactly on the same page here, Nicodemus. I know you walked in pretty confident in what you thought was the right standing with God, but I'm here to tell you, you got your wires crossed somewhere. You did a lot of good things, but you lack something so fundamental that if this doesn't happen for you, there is no way that you're going to see my kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, for years I laughed, and I even laughed this morning when I read Nicodemus' reply. This is is an old, uh, educated, wise man, and he goes, I don't get it. 
How can a man, when he's old, be born again? Can he crawl back into his mother's womb? Seriously. Now, it's obvious that unless we have the lowest possible view of this man, there's no way he meant that literally. Nicodemus is not a fool. He's not literally saying, um, my mom is kind of old. I don't know if I'll fit. And he's not saying all that. He's not that dumb. Okay? Here's what he means. Nicodemus, being well-versed in religion, I believe understood what Jesus was saying. I think he, he received it. And there's every indication later in the Gospels that Nicodemus came to saving faith in Jesus. But here's what he's saying. Man, what you just told me is I have to start over. For five decades or so, I've been pouring money into an account that I thought would be my nest egg. And you've just told me it was monopoly money. That's not fair. For years, I was banking in an economy that you just told me is invalid. So where do I stand with God if everything I have lived for and everything I have done, you say God does not value as much as this important thing which I lack? What happens? What happens? Imagine if your 401k, when you're about to retire, the guy says, Ashley, it's invalid because you didn't send us a Christmas card every year. Sorry. I know you've been paying into it for years, but didn't you read the fine print? You have to send us a Christmas card every year or you get the no money. How mad would you be? And this is the shock that Nicodemus is feeling. He's saying, how then? And here's the symbolism. He's staying in the realm of this analogy. And he says... I don't get, Jesus, I'm old now. I've, I've lived this way for you. I can't rethink it all. How can I go back to the beginning now? Isn't it too late for a guy like me? I'm stuck. There's no way I can go back. As impossible as that physical picture is, he felt that it was impossible for him to receive what Jesus was really saying, that he could actually be born again now, made new at this late hour of his life. And so... He's basically saying, how can I actually start over? Jesus answers him this way. And I know that Nicodemus didn't take it all literally because otherwise the next verse would have been Jesus would go, seriously, dude, are you stupid? You know, but that's not what Jesus says. He says, no, I know you get what I'm saying. I hear your question. Let me give you my answer. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter. The kingdom of God. Jesus' response to Nicodemus is very revealing because he's, he knows he's talking to a Pharisee, so he has to use language a Pharisee would understand. Okay? What he's saying is, Nicodemus, this new birth is not something you do. That's been the problem all along with your understanding of the faith is you always think that good standing with God is based on something you do. But this new birth is not anything you can do for yourself. It is something done to you. Birth is a passive experience. Would it be meaningful if I asked you, hey, born yourself right now. What did you do to born yourself? Can you go outside and born after church today? You can't. Born is by nature grammatically a passive word because you don't birth yourself. You are given birth. And that's the sum of Jesus' response to him. He knew he was talking to a Pharisee, and scholars agree that it is most likely Ezekiel chapter 36, which Jesus had in mind, when he uses this cryptic language, born of water and the spirit. 
Any self-respecting Pharisee or religious leader of the time would have known this verse by heart. It's one of the most beautiful Old Testament promises. And it finds its fulfillment in the gospel of Jesus. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from, from all your uncleanness, uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Now, in case you missed it, I made it red and I underlined, do you see who's the active agent in that entire promise? Do you see who's carrying all the heavy weights, the one who's doing everything important? God is saying again and again, listen, when it comes time for your renewal, I will, I will, I will do everything. You cannot birth yourself any more than you can be born again through effort or simple decision. This is entirely a work of God. And if God does it, you will be made alive. And when it happens, you will know. In Piper's uh, sermon on this, on this subject, he made an interesting observation that in George, do you guys know who George Barna is? He's like, he's like the Gallup pollster of the Christian world. He takes surveys of all these Christian things, and he publishes tons of statistics. And one of his, his common statistics is born-again Christians divorce at the same rate as, as non-Christians. And where John Piper, I think, very astutely took exception to this is you can't use the word born-again to mean self-identified Christian. Because for those who have experienced the new birth, there is a profound change in their actual life. You're not born again because you identify yourself in a survey on the phone as born again. It's not a demographic checkbox. It's a real experience without which you cannot be alive in the spirit. There's no counterfeit, no substitute. Without this real experience, you are a cultural Christian, part of a demographic or a polling group. But for those who are born again, there is this radical experience of real life, vitality, slow and steady transformation and formation, which is part of our life. We may still struggle against the flesh, but not in the defeat with which we once regarded it. There is newness of life. Just touch a baby skin and you know, this is like, it's not oil of Olay. This is genetics, biology. This is newness. Nothing has touched this kid yet. It's just so, you, you cut a baby and it heals. I haven't cut babies. I, <clears throat> it's not empirical evidence, but I've seen babies get cut. And I know that I'm expecting a big scar and the next week there's nothing. And you're like, oh, so jealous. But that's the power of new life. It surges. And just like the wind, you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. But when you feel the wind, you feel it, don't you? It shows itself. It express, it's invisible, yet it's visible. It's detectable. And such is the way of the new birth. And so what he's saying is, I will do this in you. I will do the heavy lifting. The bottom line of what he's saying is this. That you don't become a Christian by living like a Christian. There's nothing we do to make ourselves Christian. And you're not Christian because you identify yourself as a Christian. It is God who makes us Christian through the new birth, which he alone can give. Are we all together so far? So let me give you the last point. 
Being born again is the start of a new life. I want you to think about the excitement when a new baby is born. This is such a cute, innocent, peaceful picture. I, I looked at the picture for a really long time when I was preparing this sermon because that picture had this effect on me. Um, when you see a new baby that's born, I mean, how many people go to the hospital to visit a new baby and they're all depressed and like, oh, I hate coming to these places. That's the only time you like going to a hospital is when there's a new baby. You're like, and you go see it and everyone has the same Oh, so cute. And why does, why does a new baby generate so much excitement? I mean, watch, watch a community group in, in the living room of somebody's house and all grown-ups have come. They're ready for another Bible discussion. And then all of a sudden, one baby gets carried into the room and everyone just goes, oh, look at the baby. Why do babies energize us so much? Partly it's they're physically cute, their arms are stubby, and they're just all that. You know, they're physically we're drawn to it. But here's another reason, a very important reason, why I think we are so excited by babies. They represent raw hope and potential. There's something terribly exciting about somebody who's just starting out. We envy them in some ways, don't we? Oh, man, if I could just start over. Minus high school, you know, those painful high school. If I could just start over, man, I would love a new beginning. Some of you love your life so much, you're like, shut up. I love my life. I did good. God bless you. That's great. But I'd say the majority of the human race wishes they could reset the whole thing at least once or twice. With a baby, the whole future's ahead of them. They haven't... They don't have any real past to speak of. They haven't failed yet. They haven't taken any wrong turns yet. They haven't broken stuff or been wounded yet. And so for a baby, we're enthralled by this idea that everything feels infinitely possible for them. You could have the worst job in the world, but you believe your kid could become president of the United States. When you're holding your child, you truly believe with all your heart. I, I, to this day, think one of my children could be first Korean-American president of the United States. That's the, the hope that a new baby engenders. Now compare this to the way so many adults feel about our lives. We're weighed down by the ghosts of our past failures. We are loaded down with so many regrets of missed opportunities, bad decisions. Some of us, we know that we're at a point in our lives where change really isn't going to happen. We are locked in a path in our lives that we really wouldn't have chosen if we could have started it over. So many adults I talk to, they say, this is the life I ended up in. I don't know, I can't really make dramatic changes now. I'm stuck in a job that's just a job. I'm not excited every Monday jumping out of bed. And, and it's pretty much, yeah, it's time to make the donuts. And that's, that's how so many adults feel. So isn't it amazing then what a gift, a profound gift it is when Jesus says to people, who are reading this. I know how so many of you feel about life so far. Life without me stinks. Life without me, obviously I'm not talking about, I'm talking about Jesus. Jesus is saying life without me is not really life. And if you're weighed down by your life, it's no mystery, no surprise. But here's the good news. And he uses the language so intentionally because he knows we all identify with this. You, even you, can be reborn. Remember that old poster in the 80s that everyone was so fond of? Um, Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And you're like, ah, whatever. It's so true, though. 
In the gospel, this day could be the first day of a whole new beginning. The most profound and obvious thing first that you'll notice is you were once destined for death and darkness and destruction. You are now destined for life. That's exciting because you know where the train is headed, but the train itself, the ride there, is profoundly different and new. The invitation of the gospel is not simply an invitation to flip the switch on your final address. It is an invitation to a whole new life, a new beginning, a recreation of the person I used to be into a replacement with somebody who is altogether different. That's why he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You are given a new nature in the second birth. You're not just told a new lifestyle, new religion, new rules, but you are given a whole new nature. Let me explain through an illustration what that, that's like. I love my parents. This is my mom and dad. I took this three years ago at Christmas time. These are two of my favorite people on the whole planet. They shape me for me. I owe more than I could possibly express to those two human beings. I think every good feature or quality I have was taught to me by them. So don't take what I'm about to say is in any way disparaging. But I know also that being taller than both of my parents, I received a genetic complement, a set of chromosomes, which also determines certain ceilings on what I can aspire to in life. Let me say that more simply. I could train with all the commitment in the world to someday become an NBA center or an NFL linebacker. I mean, I could believe it, taste it in my saliva. I could want it with everything, devote 24 hours a day to it. And I can guarantee you that that's just never going to happen. And the reason it's not going to happen is not because I lack commitment or zeal or vision, but I lack the nature to make that possible. I'm going to be five, six and a half for the rest of my life. Well, no, no. I'll probably start shrinking at some point. It just really stinks. But uh, this is me right here. Inside, I feel like Yao Ming. I really, I feel like I could dunk the ball. But outside, this is pretty much it. So for all that I receive from my parents, I know that I was born of flesh, which is limited. This is the glorious revelation of the new birth. Is that in Christ, when I'm reborn, I'm given a new nature and my heavenly father is God himself. And he deposits in me a genetic complement that is far superior to the flesh with which I was saddled at birth. That things are infinitely possible for me because even though my parents may have worked hard to break me, even though the world and my friends and experiences and pain may have conspired to destroy me, the new nature God gives me and the real presence of His Spirit living in me is a powerful force to be reckoned with. That means that when I labor hard to grow in Christ, it is not futile. I could work every day with the vision of being an MBA center and you would say, I appreciate your zeal, A for effort, but you're dumb. You're laboring for an impossible goal. But when I labor to be like Christ, which Romans 8.29 says is my destiny, when I labor to be like Christ, that labor is worth it because I have been given a new code. 
And as impossible as it sounds right now that I could actually be like Jesus someday, the truth is that is the destiny for everyone who was born again. That we were not just justified, but we are predestined to become like the Son of God. Meaning we will become more like Jesus every day. Isn't that good news? I mean, are you excited by news like that? Or do you really relish being stuck in the same cruddy self that you are? That's good news. If ever, church, there's a time to say amen. Once in a while, just tell me you're alive and awake. That is an amen moment. We can actually attain Christ-likeness. The person who's always short-tempered and grumpy and judgmental can actually change. The person who's shallow and superficial and popularity-oriented can change. The person who's too quiet, too shy, too afraid can change. Everyone can be made new because the new spirit, the new nature that is in you is the spirit of God. That which is born of the flesh is limited and will die with the flesh. But that which is made alive in the spirit will be forever and will become glorious. Progressively so in this life and one day made perfect when Jesus returns. That's a good moment to stop. I'm just going to end there. There's more, but I'm going to spare you, and I'll just say this. A lot of people like to frame Christian life as a journey of transformation. Look how much we're changing. Look how much we've left the old life behind, and that's important and valuable. That's a good point of reference. But I also love to think of Christian life as a journey of formation. Just like I watch with wonder as my children grow up, and, you know, every parent does this. Your child is born, you see this big, mushy, sort of vaguely, a face that looks kind of like you one day and kind of like your wife the next day. You look at that and you go, oh, I want... And don't you play this game with people who have kids? What are they going to look like when they're 12? And sometimes you go, oh, okay, it's great. And sometimes you go, oh, exactly right, I knew it was going to look like that. And so when we're born in the first birth, There is this slow unfolding, this becoming who I'm supposed to be. I was supposed to look like this. Praise the Lord. This is supposed to happen. This is my life story. And you can't rush it. You can't see it in advance. There is this formation in life. And you are today probably someone that you would be surprised by 10 years ago. We are becoming something. In this new birth then, I think Christian life is also a journey, not just of transformation and changing, but of becoming. It's a journey of formation where we're becoming more like Jesus every day in our own specific context. And that's so hopeful to me because it's worth going for it since the nature and spirit in us is the new nature and the spirit of the living God. And so I say this to you for two reasons. One, if you're in this room and you're one of those that John Piper is talking about that has been walking and hanging out in this fan club for years but nothing ever really sparked off in you, you wrestle with apathy and deadness, then here's what I say. Don't pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Fall on your face and pray to God for the experience of the new birth. He's the only one who can give it. No one else can counsel you into it. He alone can flip that switch in you that makes you look at Jesus and say, that's my Savior. I hear all the logic, all the arguments, but one day every person who is truly born again looks at the cross of Jesus and has faith. They believe beyond all logic that that is the truth of life. 
And unless Jesus flips that, no amount of Starbucks counseling can get you to see that. Evangelism is important. We must tell the story. But in the end, Jesus alone, God alone, can do that powerful work inside a person to make them respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and get them set on the path that goes to life. If that's never happened for you, and I don't care if you're like Nicodemus, an expert and a veteran in things of religion, if you've been here since the beginning, if that describes you, the most important business you can do from this day forward is fall on your face and cry for mercy and tell God, I want to be born again. Do this in me. Deposit your spirit in me. Make my soul come alive. And until that happens, I will not rest because I want that more than I want anything. And if you are born again, can I remind you that you are not in the grave yet? That God invited you years ago to join him on a journey of formation, a slow and steady process by which he is shaping you to look like Jesus And there was a day when though you were 25 or 30 or however old you were, when you were saved, you were born again. You started an infant and you have the world ahead of you. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And for all the regrets you may have for what you weren't and what you didn't, looking back, today in Christ we can say, what can you do about yesterday? But I know this, there is a nature and a spirit in me That is making all things new. Today I choose to walk in obedience. Today I choose to labor for Christ's likeness. Today I choose in faith to be formed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I want to be different than who I was and who I am. And God will make that possible. So don't wave the white flag. Don't give up. If you are born again, you are alive. There is no third birth. You are in it now. You are living in the most powerful zone a human being can live in. This is God's great gift to us. Tackle it. Get out here, leave this place, and live. Live. Stop dying on layaway. Let's live. Let's pray together. You know, when we talk about evangelism, much is made of the act of proclaiming. Much is made of the words we tell and the boldness with which you tell them, and that's right. We should tell the story of Jesus. We should pointedly invite people. But another very important task of the evangelist is to pray and pray and pray. Because for all our challenge and invitation, unless God makes that person born again, ain't nothing going to happen. They'll hear you, they'll nod, they might even agree, but they will not be made alive by your words of persuasion. We must be born again we must be born again so we're going to go to prayer right now and just cry out if that is you and you know you have not experienced that new birth you cry out to God right now I am done with apathetic religion I want to know this new life if you're born again would you just take a minute to pray for those around you There's another prayer I want to ask us to pray. You know, let me ask you, how do you feel when you see a child who wastes away the entire summer sitting in front of a video game, never feeling the sunshine, never running? How do you feel when you see a young student who is not captivated by the wonder of learning, but is just apathetic about everything? And you want to grab them and say, don't you know that you have your whole life ahead of you?
Don't you know that there is a future for you? Don't you know that so much is possible if you just grab life and live it? And yet, how do you think God feels about all of those born-again people moping about as if life is already over? We've given up on change. We've given up on growing. We've already died a little bit. There is no other birth. You are already alive in Christ. If you are born again, the prayer this morning must be, do not let me die early. Let me live. Remind me that I have a future ahead of me. That are wonders in front of me that I couldn't imagine because you have made me alive in you. Let's just pray that right now. Let's go to him and tell him, I want to live. I don't want to be dead on my feet. Let's pray that now. Lord, you've heard these prayers this morning. And though hundreds of people have talked to you at once, each one of us is known to you by name and by face. You love us. And I pray that you will take these prayers earnestly lifted up and come and sweep down upon us and work and move in our lives. We want to be alive. And we believe you have made us alive in Christ. So course through this church. Blow through this place like a wind. Holy Spirit, come upon us in power. Help us to be overcomers and conquerors and victorious people because of Jesus who has made us born again. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.